0: Hey everyone, welcome to Detoxicity, a show about progressive masculinity. My name is Mike Joseph and I thank you for listening. Hopefully you enjoy what you hear. If you do, I humbly ask that you leave us a rating or a comment on whichever platform you are using to listen. Additionally, feel free to subscribe and follow me on social media, DetoxPodGuy on Instagram and TizMikeJoseph on Twitter. If you'd like to offer feedback, suggest a guest, or be a guest yourself, reach out to me on socials or via email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Enjoy the episode. I also want to take this opportunity to wish a happy Pride Month to all of the folks out there who identify as LGBTQIA+. Adam Weiner is the face and voice behind Low Cut Connie, a rock and roll band that's gained fans as diverse as Barack Obama and Elton John. In the last year or so, Adam's fame has grown exponentially thanks to his web series Tough Cookies. Created during the pandemic, it has gained a new legion of fans and has hosted guests including members of Slime Family Stone, Darlene Love, and Joan Osborne. An album called Tough Cookies, The Best of the Quarantine Broadcast, was released last month, but nothing compares to watching Adam rock out. Uh, He's full of energy, and it's a great sight to see. In our interview, Adam talks about being invested in his art bubble, the music, film, and books that keep him going. He also talks about that dichotomy between his stage persona and his private demeanor. Uh, We pay tribute to the greatness of the man, the legend, Prince Rogers Nelson, and Adam tells us all that he learned beginning his performing career in New York City's gay piano bars. So everybody, straight from Philly, here is Adam.
1: What's up, boys and girls? This is Adam low-cut Connie coming at you from South Philadelphia. So happy to be here on Detoxicity with my good pal, Mike.
0: Awesome. Woo. Thanks, Adam. Are you, You're native to New Jersey, right? You grew up in, in Jersey?
1: I sure did, yeah.
0: And uh, how did you end up in Philly? I mean, I guess it's just across the... uh, It's
1: just right over there. Um, I lived in New York uh, for 13 years. I lived in Montreal for two years. I lived in Austin, Texas. I lived in Memphis. I slept on people's sofas and (laughs) slept in my car and all for many years. And then I ended up back here in Philly and I've been here for six years.
0: What is it about Philly that has your heart? Like, what? what is it that draws you to uh, Philadelphia?
1: Philadelphia embraced my music, Low Cut Connie, when we first started in a way that nowhere else did. And the people here wrapped their arms around me and the band and really were sort of a springboard for me and my career. And eventually, when it was time to sort of set up shop somewhere where we could rehearse and record and just stretch out a little bit when I'm off the road, it just seemed like an obvious choice. It just felt good to be here.
0: Right on. So before we get into some of the music stuff, actually, this, I guess, includes some of the music stuff. You've done a lot of interviews about Tough Cookies and you know broadcasting during quarantine and garnering your uh, a fan base or at least galvanizing your fan base in the last year and one thing I want to ask to start off is just when was it that you decided I'm gonna be a musician I'm gonna be a performer I'm going to make music my thing
1: it's in my bloodstream so I can't remember a time when that wasn't my uh ambition or my calling this this shit's a life sentence Mike
0: you
1: know, <laughs> if I could have done something else that was easier I would have right but I have always known that I wanted to be a performer. I didn't know how I'd get to it, how I'd make it. I didn't know if I was gonna be an actor or a dancer or a singer or a songwriter. I started out coming to New York City in 1998 to be an actor and right away I got a gig. The first week I was there playing piano in a restaurant on Sunday afternoons and then I started getting other jobs playing piano for tips and I got more out of playing music for people in bars and restaurants and clubs than I did acting classes and I felt like this is my education being out here in these bars and clubs meeting people and trying to entertain them and It took me a minute, but I realized, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be entertaining people in a music setting as opposed to a theatrical setting, if that makes sense.
0: That makes sense.
1: But it took me 15 years, and it was during those 15 years that I learned my craft, I guess you'd say. I took my lumps. I performed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of performances and I bombed more than I hit. I got booed off the stage. I got fired from jobs, you know, and sometimes I lit up a room, but I had to take my lumps and I had to learn how to entertain people and be a performer in the way that I wanted to be a performer, which is fearless, totally fearless. And until you do it over and over and over again for hostile audiences, you're not gonna be fearless, at least for me. By the time I started Low Cut Connie in 2000, 2011 is really what it got started. I had this confidence as a performer that took me many years to develop.
0: Yeah, it's hard to look at your performances now, and the showmanship and the theatricality and all of that stuff. And I'm struggling to imagine anybody booing you off the stage, because I think people would generally just be so like, taken aback by the energy. That <laughs> well, they'd be like, oh, shit, you know.
1: But think about it this way. Think about stand-up comedy for a second, right? There's tears to stand-up comedy. You see somebody, a stand-up comic, that's gotten to the level of Radio City Music Hall or they got their own Netflix special. And I guarantee there's 10 to 15 years behind them that took to get to that. And those 10 to 15 years were probably filled with some of the worst bottom of the barrel toilet clubs that you can ever imagine. Open mic night on a Monday here, you know. And so when I first started, you know, I would go for broke. I would would do bold things on stage, but sometimes it's a swing and a miss. You know what I mean? (laughs) Sometimes you take a big swing and you whiff. And I did that a lot. Also though, Mike, I had, Some issues, I have an eye disease. My left eye, people don't notice this anymore, but my left eye barely moves. Like all the muscles and ligaments around my left eye on this side have been cut, they've been severed. Oh, wow. I can't move my left eye to the left or down or up and to the left at all. And so for many years, I appeared cross-eyed on stage. And nobody really enjoys looking at a cross-eyed person on stage. That was was a thing I had to learn to control. I had other issues. Anytime I would sing somebody else's song, I was cool as a cucumber. Anytime I would sing my own song, I always had a little shake. My Hmm. leg would shake or my hand would shake. And I had to look at videos of myself to see, oh, I got to fix that shit,
0: (laughs) Was there ever a point in time when you were like, you know what, fuck this. This is too much work. I'm going to go and be a an insurance salesperson or I'm going to work in, I don't know, work at Old Navy or something like that.
1: Well, I had a parade of shitty jobs. I always worked. In fact, I had day jobs until I was 35 years old. Like, Low Cut Connie is 10 years in the making, but the first five years of it, I was teaching. And so, I got a, a taste of success so late that I appreciated it more. But I have done so many jobs, and I was so bad at so many jobs. Like, the worst secretary you ever saw. <laughs> the worst retail you ever saw fired right phone banking everything you can imagine i tried and um i sort of cozied into a teaching gig but i'm not going to sit here and tell you i was great at it i my heart wasn't in it you know there's never been a career path that i really uh, anything else that i wanted to do or was good at so So
0: this is what was meant to be
1: I was either going to make it or I don't know what. I really don't know. I never, ever, ever really had a plan B.
0: Sometimes I think that's kind of what you have to do in order to like get over. Like you can't have a fallback option because if you do have a fallback option, you're always going to kind of see it in the background floating around.
1: I agree. I, I think that, you know, when I first got to New York City, one of my... Teachers, it was an acting teacher right before I left acting, said to me, If you can do anything else, go do it now. You know, like time will expose really where you're supposed to be. And the one thing about me, Mike, is when I was 30 years old and I had been performing already for 10 years, I didn't have any fans really. I didn't have a whole lot to show for it. I hadn't made money, I had spent money. I hadn't really progressed in my career in the music business. However, there was something that I had built inside myself, a voice and a fearlessness and a commitment. And then I really began my career at age 30. That's when I really started to build something. But if I had if if I was meant to do anything but this from age twenty to thirty, I would have quit,
0: you know. <laughs> You're right. Do you think, and you kind of already hinted to the answer to this earlier, do you think it's better to have success or to find your calling or to appreciate your calling more as an adult than it is if you were like if 20 year old Adam had just kind of like gotten a a super gig right away and was uh, a superstar?
1: I can't answer that question because I, I wasn't ready for it artistically. I didn't really know what I was trying to say or do. There are people, artists that I love and respect who at a very young age are sort of fully formed. You know, it's a rare thing, but you know, Stevie Wonder was like fully formed at eleven. Right. <laughs> but and people forget, by the way, like he made all those classic, classic, classic records. He was you know, high school age. There, you know?
0: He was in his early twenties. I mean, you can make a record like Intervisions at 22, 23 years old. Yeah. Like some people don't even know how to wipe their asses properly at 22, 23 years old. And and Prince
1: was was a boy wonder as yeah. well. There are people who are sort of touched by the hand of God at a young age. And then there's artists like me and so many other artists that I respect who are sort of workhorses. And there's some raw talent, but you got to you gotta really turn yourself into a craftsman over time. And it took my 20s to figure out how to get to where I wanted to be.
0: One thing I really love about your performances is that they are so fearless and like you are into it. It's not like you're playing cool at the piano, you're banging your head, getting sweaty, clothes are coming off. All of this stuff is happening, and I feel like most people I know, even people that perform, won't allow themselves to get that much out of themselves over the yeah. course of a performance because I think some of like the rock star thing and it, it maybe isn't even just music i think other art forms fall into this too but there's almost a sense you got to be too cool for the room you can't let them see you working really hard yeah you're putting both feet in it you're doing the patty labelle thing and you're just kind of like going for it yes. and, uh...
1: <laughs> when you, when, you know when miss patty kicks her shoes off you know yes you're in- you know it's,
0: it's business time <laughs>
1: yeah i mean a lot of people a lot of performers they want they are cool. They want to be cool. They want to be perceived as cool. They want to be cool. And part of being cool is not uh, overexerting, not showing your emotions fully, not showing the work, not pushing beyond your limits. You're supposed to keep some in the chamber, you know? But I've never been cool, and I don't aspire to be cool. I'll never be cool. I don't know if James Brown was cool or Tina Turner was cool, but goddamn, that's 10,000 fireworks going off at once. That's right. That's what I aspire to. Mick Jagger, Freddie Mercury, Bruce Springsteen, Prince, James Brown, Tina Turner. These These are like the greatest entertainers on stage who just bring 125%. Iggy Pop is somebody I really look up to. And I these are performers who will never be boring one day in their life on stage. Little Richard, who well, I keep I keep Little Richard right here on the piano on this
0: audiobook. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, that's signed. Did, did he actually sign that for you? No. This is oh. like
1: when he would perform his brothers and and like nephews would give out Bibles at the concerts and in the Bibles would be these these signed pictures. But I have a very short attention span and I give people what I would want to see, what I would want to see if I paid money to see something. And I also think that, you know, everyday life, that, you know, it is what it is. Like we, we know what to expect out of people's behavior when we go out on the street to the bank, to the subway, To work, aren't you supposed to go see entertainment and be supposed to give you something unexpected, something enlightened, something elevated? When I lived in Memphis, I went to see Al Green, Reverend Al Green, on a Sunday. I have seen Al Green on stage, like with his band, and he's charisma personified. But to see him throw down on a Sunday at his church was—it was very emotional. I mean, he was so 100% committed to every word that he was singing. Sweat pouring off of him, tears running down his face, and tears on the faces of the people in in the congregation. And I was about 19 years old at that time. And these are the kind of things I saw that sort of I modeled myself on, you know? I said, I wanna be able to do that for people
0: and you do i mean uh you've been one of the the bands or the artists that has picked up a ton of fans in the last year like you decided to start tough cookies and and when you sort of faced down the foreseeable future we're like well shit, i gotta find something to do was formulating this kind of a self-care thing or was it like i need to make some money or was it all of the above how did that come about
1: all of the above i mean I wasn't thinking about money because I don't think anybody thought you could make money from life. I definitely, I, I had to get myself motivated because I sat there and said, I am not going to lay on the couch for a year. That's not <laughs> an option for me. Emotionally with my history with depression and issues that I've had, I was not going to accept this lying down. That was number one. Number two, people that I knew and loved, fans, friends, family, they were despondent. They were losing jobs and losing loved ones and losing hope. And I said, if there's anything I can do just to make people laugh, smile, or feel elevated for a minute, let me try. And number three, you already said it. I work so goddamn hard to get where the fuck I am. I am not going to push the pause button on my career for a year. Get the fuck out of here with that. (laughs) I'm not going to sit there and let all the air go out of the balloon. No way. So I had to get busy. And I didn't think it would take off the way that it did. I didn't think I'd be doing it. A 100 episodes, and that it would have grown to this. But I'm not surprised because I'm, I'm, I like to put in a shift. You know, I like to go to the office and put in a shift and feel good about my shift. And so I created a new routine for myself.
0: All right. You mentioned, I mentioned your, your energy, and you mentioned depression a little bit after that. And I'm wondering if, like after you're done with the performance, whether it's out in the world or, you know, in your living room or whatever, and you're kind of spent and covered with sweat and like it's over, I guess there are a couple of different ways someone can feel after that. Is it like you know, is it an, an endorphin rush? Is it like crashing back to earth? Like how do how do you after all that energy is expended, how do you kind of go to the next phase where you're just kind of atom? not in front of an audience, kind of getting through your, your daily thing.
1: Yeah, well, I I like to, I'm not a partier and the people that know me know I'm very mild-mannered and very square at, <laughs> at the end of the day. You're saying like,
0: face. you're not cool and you're square. I have yet to see evidence of squareness.
1: Well, for me, the entire party is on stage. And okay. The party is for you and it's for your friends and it's for the people that you are with in the audience. It's not for me. And I'm a, I'm a host. I'm not part of it, you know. Prince was like this too. Prince was the same way. I get satisfaction and I get joy from getting everybody off at the same time and then splitting. Get the fuck out of here. And so there's a little wind down for me afterwards coming back down to earth, but that's a quiet wind down. If I'm on tour, I really just want to get, it to, you know, back to the hotel or whatever, or, or have a quiet little me meal and then read. I read, I do yoga, you know, I watch 20 minutes of Shark Tank and then I go to sleep, <laughs> you know, like it's not it's not always as sexy as somebody would like to think it's certainly not you know van halen in the hotel room in 1983 that's just not me but i feel like i just enjoy a job well done and then i rest
0: i guess we've already talked about kind of the dichotomy between on stage adam and off stage adam how else have you been managing like the last year and almost year and a half at this point as we're recording this, we're just kind of getting out of, you know, we're getting back into being able to see people and hang out with our friends again and and see our families and all that kind of stuff, you know, after being in isolation for, you know, 14, 15, 16 months. How is that working out for you?
1: I mean, I'm weird like everybody else. Aren't we all a little weird? Like I did an outdoor concert the other day and there was a lot of people and suddenly you're in I'm interacting with a lot of people at the same time and I was like this is a lot you know haven't had this in a a, a minute haven't had it in two years really because the last big shows we did were in 2019 so yeah but I feel you know like I'm back in training mode now I'm getting ready for the tour in the fall and you know I feel like I'm doing okay. I've kept myself with my head above water, despite all the the curveballs. If I hadn't have had tough cookies, I'd be in worse shape, that's for sure.
0: I bet. I bet it's nice to have at least something to do, like something to provide structure, you know what I'm saying, to kind of get through unprecedented times, which we certainly have been witnessing since the beginning of 2020.
1: To be honest, to be totally transparent, I've been more busy over the last year than I have been any other year. I actually need some time off before we go on tour. I'm taking July off because me and Will, my my guitar player, my partner in Tough Cookies. I mean, we've been working six day weeks the whole year, and I basically just sleep on Sunday and start right the fuck over. Um, but it's been it's been joyful. I'm proud of a lot of what we did and what I've gotten to do over the last year. It's just, uh, it's an odd thing because most of the people I know have been fairly idle and and waiting for things to happen. And, and I've been extra busy, extra busy.
0: Do you feel like being extra busy keeps your mental health like kind of evened out? Is it like a way to maybe divert your brain from other stuff? Like yeah. how, how, how does that work out? Yeah, I need to be busy.
1: There's a limit, you know. If I overwork myself, which I tend to do, that can be bad as well. But luckily, I've got a nice, caring group of people around me at home and in my work life that care about me and they want to see me do well. And so they let me know when I'm fucking up.
0: (laughs) Is it just like, hey, Adam, you're fucking up?
1: Yeah, people you can they can tell when I'm getting off, you know. You need some time off or yeah, you need to take a minute. But that's nice to have at this point. There was a time when I was sort of like low cut Connie and my whole career was just me by myself pretty much. I was I was doing it all and now I have some help. And for the first time in my career, I can take some time off and everything's going to be all right.
0: That's an, that's an awesome feeling, it to, is. to not always feel like you have to like grind, 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 you know yourself to a nub almost.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because I want to be this fall when I, when people pay good money to come see the band, and these shows are going to be so explosive. I want to be full firecracker, you know Tina Turner at her peak. I don't want to be limping into it. I right. want to be absolutely on my front foot. And so I will be, I'm just gonna take a, take July and then I'm gonna come back strong in the fall.
0: So one thing I read about Low Connie that I found kind of cool is that you spent, I guess a lot of time honing your act in gay bars and, and within the queer community, which being a straight guy must've been kind of like interesting for you was it something that you did consciously? And was it something that you were comfortable with?
1: Well, first, I will correct you. And without going into it, I don't consider myself, you know, straight. And it's not a word I've ever used or derived any meaning from. That being said, your point is well taken is that I was working in the gay bars. I wasn't hanging in the gay bars. I was given an opportunity when I was 21 years old and was desperately trying to find a job. I was given an opportunity to perform in a club called Pegasus that's no longer around in New York City.
0: I'm familiar with Pegasus.
1: Pegasus gave me a job. They said, uh, we want you every Saturday. We want you every Tuesday night. And I became a regular there for the better part of a year and a half to two years. And that was sort of trial by fire because um, suddenly I was every Saturday night, the center of entertainment in this packed drag karaoke bar. (laughs) And if I didn't look good, they let me know. If I didn't sound good, they let me know if I wasn't funny, they let me know. <laughs> and I learned so much. I made so many friends and I learned what entertainment is all about. And it was a community. It was seedy, you know, I, I saw things and did things <laughs> and was around things that I would never encountered before but it was a very positive environment it for me it was very positive <laughs> you know i had people who would lean over the piano while i was playing and share their life story with me i had people who would cry when i sang i had people that would put their arms around me and laugh with me and kiss me. And just, I was so embraced by the people in that club. And it became sort of a reserve of confidence for me that later in my career, when I was traveling and I would bomb or, or whatever discouraging thing would happen. I had that little bit of of gas in my tank. I I to know get back up there, you can do it better tomorrow. And and then I worked at the Stonewall, not the Stonewall Club, but the Stonewall Bistro, which was the restaurant that's no longer there. But the Stonewall used to have a restaurant, a piano bar next to the club on Christopher. I did very well there, but I did get fired from that job because I didn't know enough Christmas song. Yeah, I worked there for like a year plus and I did great. I had a lot of fans. Everybody loved me. I had a lot of friends that would come in. And then I worked Christmas and I just, I don't know a lot of Christmas songs. I'm,
0: I mean, I'm, you're Jewish. Yeah. And they <laughs> hired
1: me, you know, I, whatever. They fired me halfway through the night. I worked a little bit at Brandy's, which is a club that's a little bit. Uh, That's not, Brandy's isn't really a gay bar. It's more of a classic piano karaoke bar. And that place I didn't really fit in as well. I really didn't do great there. I I, I was not well-received there. And uh, I also was playing piano for cabaret shows. A couple people that I was their piano accompanist. There's a woman that I love named Jane who... She had an act very similar to Bette Midler's act. And I was basically her Barry Manilow and we would do jokes. And I learned so much on the New York City gay bar circuit. And it's just it's part of who I am.
0: I I would imagine that these these were things like to tie into the theme of the podcast that shape your uh, opinions about masculinity like as a whole, you know, you and I are in it the same did. age uh, range, so I, I can imagine the era in which you grew up, because it was an era in which I grew up, and really kind of having to figure things out on a rolling basis as you maneuver through the world. So I would imagine that that was kind of a crash course in, in what is a man, what does a man do, that sort of stuff.
1: I absolutely, I, I met people who were unlike people I had known before. I spent time with people unlike people I had spent time with before. My entire vision of of gender identity, sexuality, and community was completely changed in my early 20s, working in, in, in gay bars in New York City. Coming out of New Jersey from the suburbs, I had what I thought I had been exposed to people from all walks of life, but I didn't know anything. I didn't know a damn thing. <laughs> and I think that it came at a crucial time in my early 20s before I was fully formed. And I carry that with me now because you were talking to me and you used the word straight and a lot of people will sort of frame me or what I do in, in particular ways as it relates to what rock and roll is supposed to be. And I have a much different lens for these things. You're a massive Prince fan. I'm a massive Prince fan. One of the things that's always resonated with me about Prince as a performer is he was light years ahead in terms of his vision and portrayal of gender and sexuality.
0: Yes, agreed. One hundred and thousand million percent.
1: He was a horny, horny, horny man, <laughs> like me. Well tiny,
0: <laughs> tiny horny man.
1: He was. He was sex positive. He he elevated women in a lot of ways in his music, in his videos, in his performances. I was just thinking about this the other day, about how Prince opened for Rick James, and people were comparing Prince to Rick James, and I I like a lot of Rick James songs, but he was a lascivious motherfucker.
0: Yes. I, with, with Rick James, there was this sense that there was some danger behind the things that he was singing about, whereas with Prince, I think you just, this is his MO, like this is his... You know, it's not him wanting you to get into trouble. It's him wanting to get into trouble with you together, kind of.
1: Sure. <laughs> and I I think that in songs like Little Red Corvette and Darling Nikki, there's so many songs where the female is the sexually confident one and yep. he's the insecure one. Yes. You know, Little Red Corvette, it's so simple. Everybody knows the song, but how revolutionary is he's not sure if he can keep up with her
0: right and uh
1: that was revolutionary for a man to be writing songs like that and so you asked me about my formative experiences in the gay bars and in New York City and it and it gave me a lens to look through that was I feel like in a a more open lens to things it took years for me to catch up and be able to write and perform the way I wanted to to amplify that. But I'm still trying to get there, you know?
0: I mean, we grow up thinking, a lot of us, I, I shouldn't generalize, grow up thinking things are one way or the other. And hopefully as we get older, we sort of realize that there is more fluidity to everything and labels. And under normal circumstances, I don't presume anybody's sexuality at all because A, It's undefinable for a lot of people, but everything that you're saying is completely resonating with me in terms of, again, not defining yourself, not using labels, having your mind opened, because New York City is such a a diverse place. And then the queer community in New York City is so, so populous and different, and there's everything. No matter what your thing is, you come into New York City, you're going to find someone else that sure. is, is, is okay with that thing. Not that I need to toot the horn anymore for either New York City or any kind of non-binary uh, gender expression or sexuality, but hearing those things coming out of people's mouths other than mine is always super affirming.
1: Yeah, I agree. <laughs> you
0: know? And on top of all that, you just seem like, and here's something that I don't think I've actually talked about with most of the men that have been on the show is like body positivity. Because, you know, you, over the progression of most of your shows, tend to perspire and lose clothing without any kind of shame behind it. And I do think a lot of guys, myself included, can often be not as comfortable with their bodies as, as you appear to be.
1: As I try to be. I mean, yeah, I appreciate you saying that. It's funny, I'm never gonna be one of these men who runs on the street with their shirt off. And- <laughs> You know, you see these guys just running in the neighborhood with their shirt off. And I swear to God, the window is closed for that for me. <laughs> I, I'll just never have that level of confidence out in the world. But when I get on stage, it's a whole new ballgame. When I get on stage, everything that burdens my brain, all the neurotic thoughts go away all of the worries, all of the ideas about who I'm supposed to be or should be or wish I'd be, it goes away. And it's like I shed these layers. And believe me, I've done a lot of things on stage that I look back on later and I say, who the fuck was that? Who the fuck was that? And I never would be able to do it in the light of day. Never. But that's the beauty of stage life. That's the beauty of stage life. People say, you become this character on stage. I don't. I get to be my true self on stage. It's when it's the rest of the time that I have to curate who I am and say the right things and look a certain way. On stage, I get to do what, who are, you know, everything I feel truly
0: do you wish stage Adam and offstage Adam were closer to the same person? No, because
1: I can't live that way all the time. And I think that I can't, like I need to be able to know what people feel in order to make them feel the way I want them to feel. So the fact that I worked a ton of shitty jobs until my, through my mid thirties, and the fact that I'm out on the street having the same struggles and shoulder to shoulder with everybody else, I need that. I'll crave that so that then I can go get up in front of them and provide them a, a, a uh, cathartic experience. But if I went off in an ivory tower and was totally isolated, I would lose touch. And I think I would do not as good of a job for people.
0: I mean, it it feels like you really get energy from the people that support you having a, an actual relationship. And it's not like, you know, minions bow to me kind of thing. It's a, hey, you know, we're kind of all in this together. We're doing this for each other. It's very like hippie-ish I don't know if that's a bad word for you or not but communal experience where like you're a part of it you're not necessarily the overlord of it I think different
1: performers have different motivations and different intentions and there are a lot of performers who get on stage who want to be idolized or they want to be lusted after or they want to be envied and they're are some great performers and stars that I, you know, admire in that way. That's one way of doing it. That's just not me. I saw this interview with Iggy Pop where he said, I'm not a chef. I'm a short order cook. (laughs) He's like, look, I look out at the audience and I'm like, what do you need? 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 Here you go. Here you go. Dishing it out. Right. And that really resonated with me. He's not on a pedestal. He's down here with you and i don't know any other way to be to be honest
0: i love all of that so i guess trying to frame a question here beyond like the music what motivates adam what gets you out of bed in the morning and 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 getting through the days
1: i kind of live in an art bubble i kind of eat sleep and breathe movies books music and that's my life and i i really try to fill my time with with great things entertaining things great things and in whatever medium go go see photography or a great film or a play or whatever i could stand there on the street and watch somebody on the street perform if they're great you know and i guess i've always just aspired to be great at the things that I do, and that's much stronger than the desire to make money or be popular so I, I I am driven to do things that really resonate with people. I don't always do that, but I try, and that'll get me up in the morning because the minute I'm done one album, I'm making another. Amen, you know.
0: All right, I got one more question for you, and it's going to be a really hard question. sure what what is your favorite prince album? Ooh
1: <laughs> I'm so i'm I'm so basic with that because like, I think Purple Rain is like the best album ever made, you know, and last year, I got to vote. Rolling Stone asked me to vote on the top. they did a list of the top albums of all time. Yeah. And actually, I just voted again for the top songs of all time. Oh, cool! And I think I know I had Purple Rain at number one for my for my albums list, and because it's my favorite album. But it's real hard within just the catalog of Prince to pick just one. But in the in the in the grand scheme of things, in the world not only is Purple Rain musically great but it like changed the world. You know the resonance of that album just grows and grows so that's why i put it at number one. In terms of music, in terms of the music though, I'd, I'd pick Sign of the Times.
0: I think, we're, I think we're on the same page. I, you know, Sign of the Times is, is my favorite Prince album just because I think Purple Rain is more consistent. Like every song is great. Sign of the Times, there are some songs that are not as great, but there are also some songs that are better than great.
1: Yeah, like he he was taking risks. I mean, yeah. such re- he was challenging himself. And I read this book recently that is all about those those years with him and what he was doing. And One of the things that drove me nuts reading about him was the fact that he put out Purple Rain. The film was a smash. The the music was a smash. He's touring stadiums for the first time. And at the same time, he's making Around the World in a Day. (laughs) And he hurried up to get Around the World in a Day out within eight months after Purple Rain because he just didn't want to get stuck being the Purple Rain guy. And Around the World in a Day is like a totally different record.
0: Very much so.
1: And then he pushed himself in this other way with Parade and then every six months to eight months he was taking a giant leap changing who he was evolving but always challenging himself to do something different and better and I do think this sign of the times is like the pinnacle of it
0: yeah that's the apex right there
1: it's he took the most chances you know and that is endlessly inspiring to me that somebody achieves that level of success and then they say well now i'm just getting started
0: right right it's crazy to think that you know 1999 and purple rain came out kind of back well not back to back they were a year and a half apart but you know the period from 1999's release until like the beginning of 1985 and then prince is like you know what eh, i could do better than this and yeah. it's 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 amazing that You know, not even like taking a second to like say, hey, here's what I've done, but just in the middle of your peak, trying to still move the needle forward as much as you can.
1: Yeah, he and he was fighting all the way through. He was always fighting to do what he knew was great. Uh, When Doves Cry, nobody around him thought that that was good. Nobody around him thought that was a single. The only person that really liked it was the director of the film. Right. Everybody in the band thought it was a disaster, you know. But he knew. He knew. He was always fighting for for, for, to be himself. Yeah. I I love that. I love. I really appreciate an artist who doesn't get comfy. You know, they keep they keep swinging for the fences. They keep trying to do the best thing they're going to do.
0: Yeah. No, a lot of respect for that and a lot of respect just to acknowledge, you know, again, as as we've been doing throughout this conversation, acknowledge evolution and, you know, doing the work to to be the best whatever it is that you can be at, at any given time. You know, Prince, for a while, was very, very good at that.
1: Absolutely. And as far as a live performer, he never, he's, you know, he never coasted. Oh, no he got better and better and better. If he stepped on the stage, he meant business. Yeah. And I don't care if he was in a club, tiny club or a stadium or whatever, he meant business. Mm-hmm. And I I truly believe that, you know, I'm a great admirer of James Brown and he sort of wrote the book. He sort of created the template for what live performance could be. And there are people like Michael Jackson and Tina Turner and et cetera, who sort of took that to places, but Prince worked harder than everybody. He worked harder than everybody. He, he, he never sang a note or played a note that he didn't 150% commit
0: to. Right.
1: And that is a high bar, you know, because some days you just don't feel like it. And,
0: yeah, I don't think he had too many days when he didn't feel like it. Yeah. Like, he was always kind of like, let's go. Mm -hmm. You know, make you play body heat 50,000 times until, you know, your arms fall off. But he was was doing it. I got to say, how revolutionary, pardon the pun, was it for a heterosexual black man in the 1970s and 80s and early 90s to disrupt the conventions of masculinity the way Prince did in his heyday. Uh, just an amazing talent and this is the week of his birthday if you are listening to this uh, during publishing week so good to end that episode with a little shout out and remembrance to uh, the purple yoda prince rogers nelson thank you adam for being on the podcast taking time out of your schedule he's been incredibly busy lately uh getting ready for a tour if you want to know more about low cut connie whether it's tour dates and checking him out in concert or, uh finding out more about tough cookies uh, they have a patreon page you can check it all out over at lowcutconnie.com lowcutconny.com where you can find out everything about adam and low-cut Connie uh they're also on all the socials and um, i certainly advise everybody to check out the music including uh tough cookies the best of the quarantine sessions which just came a couple which just came out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Thank you again, Adam, for your time and your honesty. Much, much appreciated. Thanks for listening to Detoxicity. The show is hosted and produced by me, Mike Joseph. Calvin Williams wrote and performed the music you hear at the beginning and end of each episode, and Jacob Block designed the logo. The concept of this show was created by me with inspiration from Jeff Giles and Andrew Grossman. If you'd like to reach out to me to offer feedback, recommend a guest, or guest on the show yourself, feel free to reach out to me via socials. I'm Guy on Instagram, TizMikeJoseph on Twitter. You can also email me, DetoxPod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, stay safe and healthy, and take care of yourselves. Till next time, peace.